Hey, so we've been in this series that we're calling Get It Together, and it, it comes with two overtones, two meanings. The one reason that we are using the term get it together is that get it together refers to a group of people who are all messed up, and they just need to get their act together. They need to figure it out and get the thing straight that needs to get straight. And then we're also using it for a group of people who are divided from each other. They don't have relationship. They don't have good relationship with each other. They're broken in their relationships and they need to get together. They need to get their relationships back together. So Paul writes this letter that we call 1 Corinthians to accomplish these two purposes in the lives of the people he's writing these letters to. Let me remind you kind of where we've been over the last couple of weeks. So Paul's overall goal, his overall aim for these letters is that he wants these people to get devoted to Jesus and not to get distracted by all the other philosophies and ideas that are going on in their world. He wants them to get devoted to Jesus. And in order for them to get devoted to Jesus, he needs to remind them that he's the one who taught them about Jesus. Because there have been a whole lot of other people who are coming alongside of that church and they're saying, oh no, Paul wasn't accurate about this thing or Paul wasn't accurate about that thing. And so they're beginning to infect the church with these other ideas. And Paul says, no, in order for you to get back to Jesus, you also have to get back to what I taught you. And so in a very real sense, Paul is trying to convince them that he's worth paying attention to. Now, he's t- he took four chapters. The first four chapters of the book are all about that. Paul's trying to convince them that he's worth paying attention to, not because he wants them to pay attention to him, but he wants them to pay attention to Jesus through him. And the only way they're going to get the accurate picture of Jesus is by paying attention to what Paul is bringing to them because he's the one who brought them the picture in the first place. So Paul says, I want you to be focused on Jesus. So pay attention to me. So you'll be focused on Jesus. Now, if they're focused on Jesus, that's going to create two things in their midst. One, it's going to make them unified. Because if you're both following the same person, you should be unified under that umbrella. If there's one person who's leading you, you should be unified following that person. And secondly, if that person who's leading you is Jesus, then you will be holy like he is. So there are these two subordinate issues. Put Jesus first, and then underneath that, you need to get your acts together by holiness, holy living, and you need to get together by being in relationship with each other, unity and holiness under the umbrella of Jesus. That's the theme for this book of 1 Corinthians. Now, as Paul digs into it, after he establishes his authority, then he started attacking them on the stupidity of what they were doing. And so in verses, in chapters 5 and 6, Paul just attacked them on the fact that they had sexual immorality in the church and they weren't doing anything about it. They hadn't addressed it. They didn't deal with conflict well in that church at all. And Paul says, what are you nuts? And so he takes chapters 5 and 6 to just yell at them. I mean, he's just mad. You can tell he's angry with them. And so he is mad. He's telling them what's wrong with you. Get it together and do the thing you're supposed to do. But then in chapter 7, he turns to a more positive spin. He's still talking about the problems of sexual immorality and sexuality in the society. But in chapter 7, he gives them a positive answer. He says, that's why God made marriage. And marriage, when viewed rightly, is this amazing thing. 
But also, singleness is this amazing thing. And so he takes chapter 7 to talk about the beauty of either being married and experiencing God's plan for sexuality or being single and experience the freedom that celibate singleness can bring into a person's life. That's what Paul says in chapter 7. But now he takes a turn in a direction none of you could have predicted and I couldn't have predicted. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. I'm, I'm going to put it up on the screen. It says this. Now about food sacrifice to idols. So Paul just was talking about sex and marriage and singleness. And now he's talking about food. Food sacrifice to idols. What in the world? Where does this come from? Okay, so uh, what I need to do is I need to give you a little background information about this whole food sacrificed to idols thing. Because some of you might be thinking, Jeff, we're planning to spend three chapters on meat sacrificed to an idol for crying out loud. I have never even seen an idol. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this is a pointless passage for me. Well, strangely enough, what you're going to find in chapters 8, 9, and 10 of 1 Corinthians are some of the most quotable verses in the entire book. In fact, we're going to see verses today that you're going to be like, I've heard that verse before. Some of you are going to be like, I memorized that verse. Some of you are going to be like, I've heard that verse a ton of times. I've been in church a lot of my life. But I doubt you've ever heard it in the context. Because see, here Paul is going to be talking about food sacrificed to idols, and we don't relate to that. So... Let me give you a little bit of background information, and then I'll tell you why you need to pay attention to this particular passage. So here we go, background information. So uh, back then, in Paul's day, sacrifices happened at the local pagan temple. Remember, he's not talking about Jewishness, because he's a Jew, but the people he's writing to are Corinthians. And so their primary experience is with the pagan celebrations back then. Now, historically speaking, the way a sacrifice was done, and by the way, if you had meat and you were going to eat the meat, why not get a spiritual bonus by taking it to the temple to have it sacrificed there before you ate it? See, ancient sacrifices are a lot more like a barbecue than you think. I mean, that's basically kind of what they were. But it was a barbecue where they divided everything up into three sections. They divided everything up into three portions. So one-third of the sacrifice was just incinerated, burned to bits, to ash, whatever. You know, one-third of it was just burned up. One-third of it was given to the priest. So he was the one performing the sacrifice, and he benefited by getting a third of the sacrifice once it had been properly barbecued, and then it's all, you know, mm, then the priest gets it. Then the other third, the remaining third, goes to the person who brought the sacrifice. Now, I'm just going to ask you the question. How many of you think that if you were performing sacrifices, and let's just say you're doing a cow sacrifice, what's the third of it that you're going to burn up? Uh, bones, skin, brain, whatever. You know, you're going to burn up whatever you don't want to keep. Let's burn that third. Then you've got the rest of the animal. Now, how many of you would think that a single priest could take a third of a cow and feed his family with it in a culture that had no refrigeration. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever seen a cow. Um, but they're not small. And considering that the USDA recommends that a steak should be six ounces, um, you probably should have a lot 
a lot of meals before you finish your third of that cow. And in a society where there is no refrigeration, you pretty much have only one option, and that is to watch as this wealth just dissolves into rot or sell it. You see, that's what happened. This priest is doing multiple sacrifices a day, right? I mean, he's got many sacrifices coming in. How many cows does this guy get in a day? How many sheep does he get in a day? I mean, he's got a third of all of these sacrifices coming into him, and he and his family can only eat a portion of all this stuff. What happens to all the rest of it? They sold it. So this guy over here who performed, who did the sacrifice, he brought the sacrifice, he takes that meat, he goes home to his family, he has a great barbecue with his family. But the priest ends up with this amazing blessing of all this wealth coming into his hands, and he sells it to get even more wealth coming into his hands. That's how the markets worked back then. Now, you could, if you were a farmer, you could butcher an animal and then just bring it directly to the market. But if you're going to bring it to the market, why not get some spiritual benefit in the process and take it to the the temple first. So there was some meat in the market that had not been sacrificed to idols, and there was a lot of meat in the market that had been sacrificed to idols. And crazily enough, they didn't have any labels. I mean, there's no nutritional information on any of these things, and so they don't have any labels. None of them are like, this one's kosher, and then this one was sacrificed to one. They didn't say that. So what happens is this Christian church in Corinth these people who are raised in this environment of worshiping their idols and, and doing these sacrifices and celebrating in the meat with their family, these people have a cultural expectation that meat means idols. Cultural expectation. That's what they mean. That's what they think. And so now they're asking this question, Paul, we're Christians now. We can't participate with these idols. We can't celebrate with these idols. What do we do, Paul? And so they wrote him a letter and they said, Paul, we need to let you know some things. That's when they told him about the divisions in the church. That's when they told them about their pride in this guy's particular sexual problems in, in chapter five. And that's also where they ask him a question, Paul, what do we do about meat? Are you saying that we have to be vegetarians? There you go, another question in the Bible. Do we have to be vegetarians? Luckily, Paul's answer is no. <laughs> I love Paul. He's such a guy. Anyway, so he says, no, you don't have to be vegetarians, and he's about to tell them why. Now, how does this relate to you and me? Because you already eat whatever meat you want to eat. I know that. You don't ever worry about sacrificing that meat to an idol or whatever, and I've spent a lot of time on the background. Why are we talking about this? Because of what I just said. There's some people who were raised in an environment to believe a particular thing. And they are wondering if they need to change their behaviors to accommodate this new faith. And Paul is about to talk to them about people who differ on right and wrong. People who differ on what is the right course of action to take and what is, quote unquote, God's will for us. Have you ever been in an environment where you wanted to know what God's will was? Have you ever been in an environment where you thought God wanted you to go in this direction and yet other people were offended that you wanted to go in that direction? How do we determine if we're actually following God's path for our lives or not? That's the bigger question. That's the bigger issue here. So let's go ahead, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, right at the beginning, and let's work our way through it. If you're using the Bibles that we passed out, it's on page 538. We're starting with this food issue. Here we go. Now about food sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. 
Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. Paul does something really interesting here. You see, the problem was there are certain people in that church who knew the right thing to do. And Paul's trying to talk to them about what knowledge really means. He says this interesting phrase. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Write this down. The fundamental principle of everything we're going to look at today, and in fact, the fundamental principle of chapter 8 all the way through chapter 13 and even into 14 a little bit, everything comes down to this principle. Love beats knowledge. Love is greater than knowledge. Love is more important than knowledge. Love is better than knowledge. And take a look at that. Paul says, knowledge is this thing that can puff up. It doesn't mean there's anything inside you, but it gives you the excuse to say there's something inside you. Uh, If you have a little bit of knowledge, you can feel that you're somehow superior to the other people around you. Knowledge is the kind of thing that can easily be used to make you feel superior. Knowledge will puff you up. In other words, give you a big head, make you filled with a bag of hot air. That's what knowledge does. Knowledge puffs you up, but love builds. Because, see, love is something different than knowledge. Knowledge, you can fool yourself into thinking it's yours. Love, you never can. See, real love isn't the sort of thing where you love this other person, and then you go home and you pat yourself on the back and say, man, I did a good job loving that person. You don't do that. Because love is based upon the other person. If you love the other person, you're not even thinking of yourself. You're only thinking of how do I lift them up. Love builds up. It also builds you up because in the process you become a better person. But love builds them up. It doesn't do any puffing at all. Love is better than knowledge. And then look at that verse 3 again. It's just amazing. He says that those who think they know something, do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. It's just an amazing thing. Now, if you love God, you are known by God. Isn't it better to be known by God than to know about God? Yeah. I would rather have knowledge go in that direction. And so if I want the right kind of knowledge, I'm going to invest my heart in love, and then the right kind of knowledge follows after that. Love is greater than knowledge. So let's keep going, because in verse 4, he begins to address their specific issue. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in this world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. This is interesting. He, He gives some knowledge. Did you notice that right at the beginning? He says, we know. Right at the beginning, he said something about we know. We know that idols are nothing. We know that idols are nothing. Um, I should probably confess, let you know, that um, I have eaten food sacrificed to an idol before. In college, I was in a philosophy class, and we went to a Hindu temple. And in this Hindu temple, we're in this, we're in this room, like 
I went to a Christian college, and this was a Christian philosophy class, and we're there at this Hindu temple to see what this other religion thing does, and our professor didn't exactly know what, was, what to expect. I think he thought we were going to get a tour of the place, but we got brought into this room, and in the middle of this room, there's this giant rock that is just like a cylinder, smooth cylinder of rock for the god Shiva. You can look it up and find out why the cylinder is the way it is. But the, there's this cylinder rock in the middle, and we're, we're there, and this guy comes in the room, and all these Christian students are around the, the circle, and this guy comes in the room, and he's got a bunch of nuts in his hand, and he's got honey, and he's got orange juice. And he goes up to this rock thing in the middle, and he pours honey all over it. And so right at the top, there's this honey goo, and it's just... Kind of just smoothing down the side. And then he pours orange juice over top of it. And of course, the orange juice just slips over the edge of the honey and comes down to this little reservoir at the bottom and kind of, kind of soaks into this reservoir. And then he takes these nuts and he smears these nuts all over the thing too. And so now it's nuts and honey and orange juice. And I'm watching this thing and I'm just going... And the whole time he's making noises with his mouth, like humming uh, different kinds of chanty things. And I don't know what he's saying because it's like not my language. And so he's doing all this stuff. And I'm just watching him spread goo on a rock. You know, from my perspective, he's spreading goo on a rock. Like, what? This is, the, this is pointless. I don't understand what's happening here. Anyway, the next thing that we know, he's walking down the aisle of all the kids and he's pantomiming that we're supposed to do this. And we do this. And he puts some goo in our hands and he pantomimes that we're supposed to eat it. And so we got, we got honey and orangey seeds, like, like sesame seeds and sunflower seeds and peanuts and whatnot. So we got these, we got these things in our hand, and we're looking at each other, like, what, what are you going to do? And so finally one kid goes, <laughs> so the rest of us ate, except Morse Tan, this guy named Morse, he's off in the corner, and he just... He just he did this thing. So anyway, we eat the food that had been sacrificed to the idol. We go back into the bus to go back to our school. And as we're in the bus, we're asking each other, did we just break 1 Corinthians 8? Because we're Christians. We know this kind of stuff. We're talking about this stuff in school all the time. Did we just eat food sacrificed to idols? I don't know. I don't know what happened there. And I don't know if I was totally wrong, but I do know this. The thing in the middle of the room was the dumbest looking thing I had ever seen in my life. It was a rock smoothed over with honey and seeds and oranges, orange juice and stuff. And when Paul says, we know that an idol is nothing, I can say, yeah, an idol is nothing. The problem is not everybody knows that. Now, I, I want to take another quick aside. Today is going to go a little bit long. Just, just go with me. I want to take another quick aside because there's something fascinating that goes on here in this passage that you got to see, okay? So Paul says in verse 4, he said, there's no God but one. And then later on he said, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we, for whom we live. And there's what one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. This is an aside. This is bonus lesson. You can forget it if you want. But Paul is doing a little bit of a lesson here that we would call Trinitarian doctrine. Now, a lot of people don't believe that the Trinity is a concept that we should accept. This idea that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all one, but there's only one God, but somehow these three things 
things are one. And they'll say, well, it's never taught in Scripture because the word Trinity doesn't show up in the Bible. But you've got to pay attention to what Paul just did here because what he did here is astonishingly cool for Greek people and for Jewish people for two completely different reasons. What he just did is he said, we know there's only one God. There's only one God. The Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there's one Lord, Jesus, through whom all things came and through whom we live. What he just did there is fascinating because, see, Jewish people would have taken some real, uh, they would have noticed something really important there. See, Paul's a Jewish person. And he knows that the word Lord is a code word in Jewish culture. You see, the word Lord is the word that the Jewish people use, the Hebrew word is Adonai, that means Lord. They would use that word to refer to God and to refer to God's divine name. When Moses was standing in front of the burning bush, he said, who are you? The burning bush voice said, I am who I am. And Moses said, well, what do I tell people your name is? And so God uses a phrase, I am, in the Hebrew language, it sounds kind of like I am. And he gave himself a proper name. Yahweh is the way we think it should be pronounced. And so he says, you're to tell people Yahweh sent you. I am, you're supposed to tell people, Yahweh sent you. So the name that comes out of the burning bush is the word Yahweh. The people in the ancient world, the ancient Israelites, never pronounced that name because they were scared of it. They were afraid that God would do something bad to them if they mispronounced his name or used it improperly. And so they never said it out loud. Instead, they said the word Adonai, which meant Lord. So they always used the word Lord to refer to the one name that came out of the burning bush. And here's Paul, a Jewish person, saying, we have one Lord. Lord. And then he gives him a name, Jesus. See, for any Jewish person, that's like, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. We have one God, the Father, get it. We have one Lord, get it, Moses burning bush. Jesus, are you saying that Jesus and the Father are one in the same somehow? That's what he's saying. But then beyond that, for the Greek people, they had this philosopher back then that was talking about the divine power, this one universal divine power, and they said, in him we live and move and have our being. That was their philosophical phrase for this one divine presence. And, God, and Paul just said, the Father is the one who created all things and for whom we live. And Jesus is the one through whom things were created and through whom we live. In other words, there is one divine essence and Jesus is the way to it. See, Paul is making a Trinitarian claim here that both sides of the aisle could get in their own special way. And the fact that Paul would be able to speak to two different cultures in one simple phrase is an amazing illustration of what we are about to see in the rest of this passage. Let's keep going because we're running way out of time. Keep going. Okay, so here we go. We're in verse uh, 7. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Paul says, idols are nothing, they're meaningless, food sacrificed to an idol is also absolutely meaningless, it's insignificant, it doesn't matter if you eat it, because if you eat the honey that touched the rock, it's just honey that touched a rock. It's no big deal. But if there's someone in that room and they don't know that that rock is no big deal, like the guy who gave us the honey, 
He doesn't think that rock is no big deal. He thinks that rock is something special. And that guy, he doesn't know what I know. And even though I have knowledge, that's not good enough. There's a principle at stake that this other person, he can be defiled by the same behavior. In fact, the food, Paul says, is defiled. How does that work? The food is just food. I mean, it, it, it doesn't change depending on the belief of the person. Oh, but it does. Let me illustrate to you. There's, um, there's a series of syllables in the English language that pastors have the right to say anytime we want to say them, right? It's the word H-E with some hockey sticks at the end. I'm, I'm a pastor, and so I have the right to use that word. I usually only use that word in a really southern drawl, you know, to try to emphasize that I'm using that word and to make it sound really, you know, significant and whatnot. But I'll tell you what, when I was a kid, I wasn't a pastor. And when I was a kid, that word was off limits, when I was a kid, that word was a bad word. That was a bad word. It was, it was one of those words that you just don't say. And so as a result, that word got replaced by other words. H-E with curve and K. Heck. So, you know, we would, we would use heck as our replacement for the double hockey stick word. And so I believed this word was bad, and I knew it was bad. And, and one day our youth group was out um, riding ATVs, and you have to know something about me. When it comes to physical manipulation of motorized objects, I have a tendency to be really terrible. Um, and so I, I think I'm, I'm better at that a lot now, but back then, see, I lost control of the ATV. I was riding on the ATV, I lost control of it, and all I needed to do, don't, don't blame me, I was young-ish, and so all I needed to do was take my thumb off of the stupid throttle, right? I mean, because I'm losing control of the thing, take the thumb off the throttle. But what happened to me was I was losing control, and so I also freaked out, and so I also was, ah! And so as a result, everything tensed up, and I went even faster. So here I go, I'm riding around this little loop in this ATV thing, and I hit Lost Control City, and I freak out, and I'm grabbing onto the thing, and I don't know what's going to happen next. I'm not thinking clearly about any of this stuff. And I plow right through our coolers. So we had all these coolers with our lunches and our sodas and everything. And I plow right through them. And as I plow through them, I bounce so much that my hand comes off the throttle and the thing slows down. And I turn around and I look back at the people who are looking at me, staring at me funny. And I just say, what the hell were you saying? As if it was their fault. I said it. Now, I'm a pastor now, so I can say it now, right? So we're, we're cool. Let's see, let's see that's, all, that's my, because I'm, right? Is that, is, are, we, are we good with that? Okay, so anyway, so here's the deal. I believe at the moment I said those words, even though it's just a syllable. I mean, for crying out loud, it's a syllable. It's a syllable like any other syllable. Like, I, you know, I could tell you about a number of other syllables that I wasn't allowed to say in some contexts, but I was allowed to say them in other contexts. Did you know that Hoover wanted to stop that river and so he built a dam? Anyway, it's just a syllable. So it's not a, bad, it's not a bad word, but it was a sin for me, and I'll tell you why it was a sin for me. Because at the moment it came out of my mouth, I thought it was a sin. 
and I intentionally did it. I had it wired up in my heart that this thing is a bad thing to do, but I'm doing it anyway. That's why it's a sin. And those other people who are standing out there, my youth pastor comes up to me and he goes, um, Jeff, that was inappropriate. Because <laughs> he knows these other students who are standing there, they just heard the pastor's kids swear. And if he did it, well, by howdy, I can do it too. So here's the deal. Not only was it sin because I knew it was a sin or felt it was a sin when I did it and chose to do it anyway and therefore acted out rebellion and that's the sin, but I also helped someone else to be emboldened in doing a similar kind of thing even though they knew it was wrong, they believed it was wrong, they might do it too and therefore they sinned and I caused them to sin and I caused them to sin against Jesus. It's not just sinning in general. Look at verse 8. Food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Food is meaningless, like a syllable. But careful, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Meat is meaningless. Meat is insignificant. The only thing I care about is how my behavior might affect that other brother who might think something is wrong and go into it because I did it, but they think it's wrong and therefore they are sinning because they have intentionally done something they think is wrong. Paul says, I'm just going to not eat meat ever again if that's the case. Write this down. Paul says, I limit my liberty for the sake of others. I limit my liberty for the sake of others. The other two chapters go a little bit quicker than that. Let's look at chapter 9. Verse 1, Paul says, am I not free? Of course that's the right question. Why should I limit my liberty? Am I not free? Don't I, have, don't I have Christian liberty to do whatever God is calling me to do and whatever I want to do? Anyway, let's keep going. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul's saying, I brought you Jesus to begin with. You're my children. I'm your apostle. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Remember, that's Peter's Hebrew name. Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it's written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. In other words, the animal that's doing the work, let it eat as it moves along. Your prophets go down, but who cares? You're being kind. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? 
Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? And that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Paul refers to sacrifices again. Did you see that? He said, don't you remember that priests get some of the blessing from the sacrifice? They get some of the benefit from the sacrifice? Paul is giving them an example from his own life. And in order to give them an example from his own life, he sets up a principle. And the principle is ministers should get paid well. He says ministers should get paid well. In fact, Paul says they need to be paid so well that they can eat and drink. Now, you've you got to know what he means by that. If he meant he just, that ministers just need enough to subsist, enough to survive, he would have said food. By using the phrase eat and drink, he is talking about the kind of festivities that are alongside of feasts. Jesus was accused by the religious leaders of his day of being a person who would eat and drink. That's what he was accused of. And so Paul says, don't we have the right to eat and drink? Don't we have the right to bring a family along with us? Because if Paul has a wife in that society back then, there will be children. And so as a result, Paul simply says, you should pay your ministers well enough that they can party with the whole family, that they can feast with the family, they can be happy supporters of their families. That's what Paul says. Now, I've met some people who believe that that's not the case in our modern world. They believe that churches shouldn't actually pay their pastors. And I need to let you know that I'm not one of them. <laughs> we're not talking about our church budget today. So what we're doing is we're talking about Paul's example. Take a look at what he says next. He says, but, verse 15, but I have not used any of these rights. And I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, meaning they haven't yet. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. His personal experience is that he has the right to be paid, but he has chosen not to. Why, Paul? Well, on the one hand, because he wants to be able to boast that he offered the gospel to people for free. But there's another reason, and it's a deeper reason. Keep reading. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. See, that's the point. Slaves don't get paid. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share 
in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last forever, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. A lot of people take these passages out of context. And by taking them out of the context, you miss the bigger picture of what Paul is trying to do. Paul isn't just talking metaphorically about as a Christian, you got to run the race and you got to run the race to win. And you got to try your hardest and try your best. No, what he's saying is I have chosen to live a life of slavery for the sake of the gospel. And when it comes to people, I will do whatever it takes to build a connection with that person. If that person is a Jew, guess what? I'm going to go do Jew things with them. I'm going to eat Jewish food with them. I'm going to sing Jewish songs with them. I'm going to hang out in their Jewish house. That person's a Gentile. Guess what? I'm going to go do Gentile things with them. I'm going to eat Gentile food in their Gentile house. I'm going to wear Gentile clothing and I'm going to hang out with them and I'm going to talk Gentile language. And I'm going to do whatever it takes with anyone so that I can help them get that much closer to letting me tell them about Jesus. In the hope that maybe they'll hear it and connect with it and be saved. And I tell you what, that's why I'm in this race. In fact, I beat my own body so that it's a slave to me because I'm living like a slave all the way through and through for the sake of the gospel. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I don't just limit my liberty. I live like a slave. I am living like a slave for the sake of the gospel. Write that down. Let's move on. Chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 1. He says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud. Wait a minute. Whose ancestors? Is Paul writing to Jewish people or is he writing to pagans? He's writing to people who formerly were pagans mostly. There's some Jewish people around, but mostly he is writing to Gentiles. So when he says our ancestors, he's talking about his own ancestors. He's going to give us an example from the people of Israel. He says, our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the, same, from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with them, with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. What Paul is doing here, I love it. He's making fun of his own people to connect with the Gentile people even better. 
Because see, what he's saying is he says, my people, these Gentile people, they don't know the story of Exodus. Some Jewish person in their midst is going to have to tell them the story of Exodus. And Paul says, let me tell you something. My people had every benefit. They had a kind of baptism you don't know about. You were dunked in like a river or something. These people, they got the baptism of going through the Red Sea. God split the sea in two. They walked right through the middle of it. That's a baptism like you've never seen. Paul could say, you had the Holy Spirit come on you, but guess what? These people, they had the presence of God in the form of fire and cloud descend upon their camp every single day. These people had the cloud of God in their midst. They had everything going for them. They had all the possible spiritual resources they could ever need. These people had everything they could have had. Very similar to you, but way better. They had a spiritual food. You have communion? They had a spiritual food and drink. Their drink came out of a rock. Their food just appeared on the ground every single day. These people had every spiritual blessing they could possibly have, and the desert is littered with their bodies. God killed them all because they failed him time and time again. So then Paul says, they had every resource, but they failed. So look at verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted... He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Do you see what Paul says there? He says, God is giving you every resource you need. He is giving you every resource you need. So don't blow it. These people had every resource they needed and they blew it. And God is giving you every resource you need. Will we succeed? Will we be the people who actually succeed in this? See, let me summarize where we've been so far. It started with food, but it wasn't really about food. It was about Paul saying, there's a principle at play here where you can choose to pay attention to your knowledge of the way things really are, or you can love other people. Let me tell you how I do it, Paul says. Paul says, I limit my liberty and I sacrifice myself as a slave to other people. Let me tell you how the Israelites did it. The Israelites had all the blessings they could possibly want from God, and yet they failed him time and time again. Because see, all those blessings, they just viewed them for themselves, and in their selfishness, they grumbled and complained. In their selfishness, they whined about God. In their selfishness, they argued with each other. They were divided among each other. They had all these problems. They had sexual immorality. They had all these problems, and they were wrong, and so they died, and now Paul is ready to turn the finger back to the people who read this letter. He says, so now it's back to you. How are you going to deal with this? What are you going to do? Are you going to let love trump knowledge? Let's find out. Verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. He's making a reference to, to uh, communion. 
But he's also kind of hinting at this idol feast, this idol food that they might be eating, right? So keep going. He says, consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Yeah, we know that. The people who eat the sacrifices are the ones who are participating in the thing that happened at the altar. Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? It almost sounds like Paul is saying, okay, you shouldn't eat food sacrificed to idols, right? It sounds like a no. It sounds like he's saying there's a no here. If you eat the food sacrificed to the idol, then you are participating in the idol thing. You are worshiping a demon along with that thing. And so it sounds like he's saying no. Is that what he's saying here? Well, keep reading. Sounds like a no. I have the right to do anything, you say. But not everything is beneficial. But I have the right to do anything. But not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. You see, at this point, it really becomes clear. His whole food thing isn't about the demon or the nothing. It's about the people. You see, if you eat the food sacrificed to an idol, you are participating in that thing. So remember, whenever you eat food of any sort, you are participating in the community. And he says, don't ever look for your own good. Look for the good of others. This is principle number one. Underneath the foundation that love is greater than knowledge, principle number one is I'm going to pursue the good of others. So Paul, just tell me, should I eat the food sacrificed to an idol or not? Just give me, give me a, a, a clear principle that I can use here. And Paul says, no, no, I'm not going to give you all that easy. But I will tell you this. Let's finish it up. Paul ends it like this. He says, eat, verse 25, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. In other words, eat anything sold in the meat market, but don't ask where it came from. Literally. Don't ask. <laughs> for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. I'm just going to give God the credit for this food. The whole earth belongs to him. But verse 27, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm, not referring to the, I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? There he's saying, listen, it's not my conscience that I'm worried about. It's their conscience that I'm worried about. You see, if I don't ask a question, my conscience is clear because I don't know. Everything belongs to God. I'm fine. If I don't ask the question, this person's conscience is clear because they don't know what I know or not know. That's fine. His conscience is clear because he's ignorant. But if I'm here and I ask the question, now my conscience is still clear because I know that idols are nothing, but that guy's conscience is not clear because that guy thinks I'm sinning. 
Because that guy thinks I'm doing something wrong. Because that guy thinks that he might also join in doing that wrong thing. And his conscience is not clear about my behavior. And Paul says, I shouldn't be judged by that, and I won't be judged by that, but I will give you a principle, verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Here's the next principle. In everything, pursue the glory of God. Before I give you final blanks, I need to let you know this is a big misunderstanding among a lot of people. You see, this is one of those verses that gets taken out of context a lot. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. I've memorized this verse many times in many different translations and contexts in many different uh, church environments and school environments and all kinds of stuff. Whatever you do, in, in another passage in Colossians, he would say, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all for the glory of God. This one says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And the, and the eat or drink part of it is always the throwaway part of it because when you take it out of context, that eat or drink part of it is a throwaway part. And you're like, well, why am I saying eat or drink? Let's just start with whatever. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That works really well. Let's just start there. And so we memorize the passage and we just start with the whatever. But the problem is eat and drink is there because that ties it to the whole context. See, Paul's not talking about doing things for the glory of God. This is the way Christians operate. And it's something that I think is way too much of a sickness for us. This is the way Christians operate. We read the immediate context of this passage where Paul says, why should I be judged by someone else's conscience? Whatever I do, do to the glory of God. And then we Christians give ourselves permission. We give ourselves permission to say, oh no, what I'm going to do, I'm just going to glorify God. It doesn't matter what people think of what I'm doing. It doesn't matter what they think about what I'm doing. In fact, I don't care what you think about what I'm doing. I'm just going to glorify God. And so I'm going to eat this food because I'm just glorifying God. I'm going to give God thanks for this food because I'm just going to glorify. I don't care what you think about it. I don't care what you say about the way I'm living my life. It doesn't matter to me. I'm just living for the glory of God. Because we get in this mindset that for some reason, the glory of God is also my selfishness. Here's why it's ludicrous. Look again at the verse context. It shows up. I'm going to put it up on the screen. He says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved. Do you notice this? Paul says, do everything for the glory of God, and he's not talking about the glory of God as some sort of selfish reaction between me and God, that I can, I can go for the glory of God in isolation of other people. Paul is saying specifically, I am going to seek out the glory of God by doing good to the people around me. See, there's a problem that we have. How much glory can I give God? I mean, me, as an individual person, how much glory can I give to God? I could go uh, to a room and I could close my eyes and raise my hands and I could sing a worship song. I can pray and I can tell God how great he is. And I can give him glory. And in in my life, I might be able to muster 10% of my human worth to bring that glory to God. Maybe on a really good day, I could work harder and I could get more focused and I could be less distracted and I could bring 50% of myself to that moment to give God the glory, of, the glory worth 50% of a human being. 
And I could give God this immense glory of 50% of a human being. What if I want to give him more glory than just 50% of a human being? Whoa, I can try harder. I can do a better job. I, I can just, I can maybe, maybe, maybe get hot. Even if I could somehow muster 75% of a human being's value in bringing glory to God, if I really want to bring glory to God, I'm not going to waste my time on that. If I want to bring glory to God, I need to get someone else with me. And the more glory I want to bring to him, the more people I need to be next to me. We do it with our sports teams. I'll wear the shirt. You're not wearing the shirt. I'll tell you, you should wear the shirt. I'll buy you a copy of the shirt. I'll make you wear the shirt. We'll walk around downtown while you're wearing the shirt because I made you wear the shirt because I'm trying to increase the glory of Broncos or whatever. You know, that's what, we do that kind of stupid stuff all the time. I'll bring you to the game. I'll try to sell you on the quarterback, why this is such an amazing team, why you should pay attention to this team. I'll try to do all sorts of things to increase the glory of the thing that I love. But when it comes to the glory of God, for some reason, I think it's all about me. No. The glory of God is always, I'm going to seek not my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved. Because if I'm working for the glory of God, nothing glorifies my God more than one more person who gives him some glory. I do the glory of God thing for others. I do it for others. See, here's the whole thing put together. Paul isn't just talking about food and things sacrificed to idols. What he's talking about is he's talking about this little principle that you and I don't agree with each other all the time. And I might do something that you think is wrong and you might do something that I think is wrong. And we might be in disagreement with each other. But guess what? I don't care what you know and I don't care what I know because love is better. And we have to find some way of being in submission to the glory of God, following our Lord Jesus Christ and loving each other even if that means limiting my liberty, even if that means becoming a slave, even if that means treating myself as down here because my job, my goal, my hope, my desire is to bring just another person into the mix so that God gets more glory. A beautiful name is Jesus. A wonderful name is Jesus. Jesus Christ is the king of love for us all. And I love my king, God. I love you. I love my king. Thank you, Rick. So now I want to ask you if you believe that. I want to ask you to spend some time in reflection right now and say, God, what is it that I have been making about me that needs to be about others? And let God speak into your heart something as we close out our time this morning. Let me pray for you. Thank you for listening to this message. We believe that God has a full and fulfilling life in store for you, and we want to help you live it. For videos, resources, and more, visit us online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com. And as always, we want to encourage you to plug into a Christ-following community of faith wherever you are. Life is a journey, and no one should ever walk alone.